Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is about the Dardan Brothers 2014 film, Two Days, One Night. Marion Cotillard plays Sandra, a worker at a solar panel factory. She goes through a bout of depression and then she tries to return to work, only to find out that her co-workers have voted in favor of a bonus instead of voting for Sandra to keep her job at the factory. She's able to convince her boss to do a second vote. So with the encouragement of her husband and some friends, Sandra visits each co-worker over a weekend and tries to get them to change their vote in favor of her staying at the factory. In this episode, I talk about class, depression, the making of the film, Marion Cotillard's preparation for her performance, and so much more. I really think this film is a masterpiece. It moves me. I think it's incredibly powerful. I think it has so much to say about the world we live in today. So I hope that you will listen to the full episode, and I hope that you like it. Also, there are spoilers in this episode. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the work I'm doing on a monthly basis, and you can also access rewards and extras, like bonus episodes and even merchandise. You can find out more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. I'd love to first give a shout out to my wonderful new patron, Jenny. Thank you so much for becoming a patron. And I'd also like to give a shout out to my other patrons, Eddie, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Max, Tyler, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for your support. If financial support is not an option for you, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and or Stitcher. If you write a review on iTunes, I will read it on a future episode of the podcast. You can tell your friends and followers about Her Head in Films, or you can engage with me in a positive way on social media. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Her Head in Films. You can find links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. So I won't keep going on. Here is my in-depth analysis about two days, one night. some films that you watch for a second time and they don't really hold up for you. You know, you watched it years ago and you remember it as really great and then you watch it and you're like, what was I thinking? This is not, this is not what I remembered. And then I think there are films that you watch again and they absolutely hold up and maybe they're even better. Maybe you feel them even more deeply. And that happens to me quite a lot. 
but especially for this podcast because honestly a lot of the films that I cover are films that I saw years ago. I don't do a lot of recent or newer releases. A lot of what I'm going on about a film is what I remember. It's about my memories and the feelings that the film brought up for me when I first saw it. And that's the way that I know I have to talk about a film is that it just implants itself in my mind or my consciousness. And that's what Two Days, One Night was for me. It was this film that I knew I wanted to talk about it. I knew that I loved it when I first saw it. It came out in 2014 and I probably saw it around that time or maybe 2015. And re-watching it for this episode, I found myself just even more stunned by it. It absolutely held up. It more than held up. It exceeded my memory and my expectations. And to me, it's like a masterpiece. Now, I have not seen a lot of films by the Dardan brothers. I've only seen La Promesse from 1996. I remember that being really good. But as a result of me doing this episode and rewatching Two Days, One Night, I am hoping to explore more of the filmography of the brothers. Because honestly, when I watch them, especially when I watch Two Days, One Night, it was giving me everything that I want in a film. It was giving me emotion. It was giving me humanity and warmth, but also complexity. And that's a big thing about the film is that this is a really complex sort of moral, ethical film. And you don't see those every day. And I think we need them. I think that films like this are wonderful because life is not black and white. Not everything is black and white. There are shades of gray, there's nuance, there's complexity. And something that really works for me with this film is how everybody is given humanity, everybody's given respect, and there's no like evil person except maybe Jean-Marc, right? But there's just so much in this film that I loved and I'm gonna go through all of that in a little bit and tell you everything that moved me and that compelled me and resonated with me. But first, I want to start with talking about the Dardan brothers and some of like the making of the film and stuff like that before I get into my full-on discussion of the film. But I just want to make it clear that for me, re-watching this film, I'm so glad I did. It holds up. If, if you've only seen the film once and maybe you're going off memory as you listen to this episode, I would invite you and encourage you to re-watch it because you're going to be re-watching it in a different context You know, the world was different in 2014 and 2015 when a lot of people probably saw it. I mean, it's a few years. It's, well, it's like, it's like six years after the recession, right? So we were sort of more in the depths of that. But there are a lot of people still struggling in our economy here in the United States. That's the only viewpoint I can speak from. But I'm sure in Europe and all of that, we've seen like a surge of populism in the last few years since this film came out. You know, the election of Donald Trump and terrible things happening, but also amazing political things happening like the campaign of Bernie Sanders or the election of AOC and you know, democratic socialism becoming more popular, more radical left-wing ideas becoming mainstream, talking about workers' rights, 
you know, talking about the economic difficulties that people face. So I feel like the film taps into a lot of that, what it's like to live with financial precarity, because so many people do, especially people of my generation, millennials, those of us who have massive amounts of college debt, who are finding it difficult to find well-paying jobs to support ourselves. But this is happening to every age group. You know, you've got elderly people living in poverty, young people, you know, working class people, the working poor. Even though the film isn't directly engaging with all of that, to me, it's a story about just your average ordinary working class person who is having to deal with so many issues. And we don't often see films like that. We don't often see people navigating the workplace, right, or dealing with financial precarity. Those stories don't tend to get told. And so I appreciate that the Dardan brothers, a lot of their films are about those very issues. And those are always timeless to me, I think, because there's always people living on the margins. I myself live on the margins. I'm working class. I deal with being financially precarious and things like that. This is a film that resonates with me and I'll go more into that, you know, as I talk about it. So just a little bit of background about the Dardan brothers. I don't know how much those of you listening know about them. I certainly didn't know a lot about them because I've only seen two of their films, but I'm very interested in their entire in their entire filmography because the subjects and the themes that they talk about really resonate with me and are something that I've experienced in my own life in a lot of ways. So they are a directing duo. They're brothers, obviously. They're Jean-Pierre. He's the older one. He was born in 1951. And then there's Luke, who was born in 1954. They were born in the in Liège, Belgium. It's a primarily French-speaking region. And they've pretty much stayed in that region in Wallonia and that's where that's where their films are made that that's the people that they're focusing on the everyday ordinary people a lot of my resources I I read a lot of interviews like with uh, Marion Cotillard and then interviews that the brothers did for different websites and all of my resources will be in the show notes of the episode and there were also some good extra features that the Criterion Collection put out with their edition of two days one night and in it they have this very long in-depth interview with the brothers and I loved every minute of it I love watching interviews with directors I love watching directors talk about their films and the genesis and the the nitty-gritty and the behind the scenes and I just drink all of that up I love it I love to know how a work of art comes together and how it's formed because I think it's sort of this alchemy that happens where you have you have the hard work of it, right? You have words on a page, you have actors in rehearsal, you have when the film is turned on and the actor is performing, but then you mix in a lot of mystery with the way that these elements come together and how they work. And so I just love seeing the way directors work and the way their minds work and so it's fascinating to me and they talked about how they're outside of the Hollywood bubble in that interview and how living in the area of Belgium where they live they're much more connected to everyday life and the reality you know of what a common person or a regular person faces 
And so it's actually an advantage for them that they don't live in Hollywood or they don't live in Paris or some fancy place of Belgium, right? They're much more um, connected to what's happening and the social reality and the social conditions of people's lives. And they do have a social realist style. I read some of uh, the book by Philip Mosley. It's called The Cinema of the Dardan Brothers, Responsible Realism. And he talks about the different elements of their work. And he says that they look at, quote, the lives of working class individuals struggling to survive with a measure of dignity in a new world order that for them is mainly one of poverty, unemployment, social disintegration, and environmental ruin, unquote. Well, doesn't that sound uplifting? (laughs) But I love films like that. I like films about reality. I like films about everyday, ordinary people. It's all throughout this podcast episodes that I have done, whether it's Agnes Varda's films Vagabond and The Gleaners and I, or something like Two Days, One Night. These are the things that matter to me. And he said that the brothers look at, quote, questions of honesty to ourselves and others and of how we assume and exercise a sense of human responsibility, unquote. This book by Philip Mosley was really informative for me. It was written, I think, before Two Days, One Night came out. So he didn't have, I think, any analysis about it. But I learned so much about the brothers. He goes on and talks about how the brothers really do everything together. They do casting, they scout locations, they do rehearsal, promote the film. They're deeply connected to each other in that way. Now, Luke does write the scripts for the films, but Jean-Pierre is very involved in it, and he gives his input as the scripts are being written. And they actually put a lot of time and care into the script and into finding locations. Something interesting about that Criterion interview was when they talked about clothing and costumes. They said that that is really crucial, that like with figuring out what Marion Cotillard would wear in the film, they spent a lot of time and effort on on that. They're very interested in bodies, in, in the way that actors use their bodies in the scenes and in the films. And I love that. I love sort of a corporeal cinema in that way that's about the human body. But they often spend months working on the script, finding the right locations. They don't use any kind of soundtrack music or score. The music in all their films is just natural to the environment. Now there is music sometimes, but it's part of the scene. It's a natural part of the scene. And we have that a few times in Two Days, One Night, one where a Petula Clark song is playing, and that's such a wonderful scene, and another where some rock and roll music is playing. But it's in the car, and it's just a natural part of it. They're not interested in these mainstream cinema formulas, and certainly not in, like, Hollywood formulaic cinema. You know, they're just not interested in that. Something that's fascinating is that casting is really crucial for them. And they often, they don't always pick non-professionals necessarily, but they will pick sort of newer actors or unknown actors. And then they'll also mix in non-professional actors too. They're not so much concerned about how well a person acts, but they're interested in their bodies and faces. This is what Philip Mosley um, writes about. And he says that for the brothers, it's much more they how they feel the person or the actor will embody the character and bring it to life. So they're much more interested in how the person looks. 
And a lot of who they cast are from Belgium, especially in the area where they live in the French-speaking part of Belgium. Philip Mosley mentioned something really interesting. He says, quote, For Luke, their regional location within a small nation offers them a necessary isolation and enables them to avoid many of the pressures of the international film world. For instance, he finds Christoph Kishlovsky's French-made blue disappointing, preferring his Polish films, wondering if he is out of his element elsewhere, and concluding that it is difficult for a filmmaker to immigrate, unquote. This is fascinating because I just did an episode about Three Colors Blue by Krzysztof Koszlowski. He's my favorite director. I love his work. And I mean, obviously as a listener, you don't care about the order of the episodes, but when I am crafting the episodes or when I'm figuring out what films I want to do from month to month, I do sometimes think about the interconnections between the episodes. But this just happened to be a coincidence that when I was doing my research, this quote came up referring to Three Colors Blue, which I just did. And I love Three Colors Blue. I love the work that Krzysztof Kieślowski did in France in Europe, you know, outside of Poland. But I also love his Polish work, like The Decalogue and No End and Camera Buff. I enjoy his Polish films, but they're very different. They're different in terms of the themes and the content and the look. And so I just thought it was interesting that Luke prefers the Polish films, right? Because most people, I think, who are big fans of Kieślowski would prefer the Three Colors trilogy. They would prefer the Double Life of Veronique, which I love, and it's one of my all-time favorite films, and I just found that really fascinating. But of course, I think Luke would be more attracted to the social elements, the social themes of, of Kieślowski's Polish work. I want to talk about the making of the film and just give a little bit of like behind the scenes stuff because that's information that always interests me and fascinates me. And I did a lot of research because I wanted to learn. I I love to learn all this stuff. And then when I record the episode, I just kind of go with what I've learned. And it's like sort of osmosis. I kind of find the research to be really important. It, It shapes the way I see the film. It shapes the way I talk about the film to know as much as I can about it and the way that it was put together. So the idea for Two Days, One Night was with the brothers for a while, probably around the decade, around a decade. They'd always wanted to make this film. And even though they usually cast, like I said, sometimes unknown actors, non-professionals, or newer actors, they wanted Marion Cotillard for this role. And it's the first time they really used a big star in one of their films. They actually met her while they were producing a film called Rust and Bone that she stars in. And that's a really excellent film. That that might be a film that I'll cover one day in the future. I actually hadn't thought about it for a long time until I was doing this research and it came up. And I was like, yeah, I really liked Rust and Bone. I don't feel like a lot of people talked about it. And it's it's a really great role for Marion. And so I'm, I might actually cover that one day. I don't know. But it's one of those films I think was really good. And I had no idea that they produced it. But that's how they connected with Marion Cotillard. And they thought she was perfect for the role of Sandra. But back to the idea for this film. Luke 
in an interview with Interview Magazine talks about how the film, how the idea for the film started. He said, quote, The starting point for our story was something that we read in a sociology book. The story of a worker at a Peugeot in France who had been expulsed from his team with the benediction of the boss who had incited them to put it to a vote. That team was not getting its bonuses and they pinned it on the fact that this worker was less productive than some of the other workers and that there were other weaknesses and so they voted to get rid of him. What was shocking was not that a worker would get fired because people do get fired regularly for all kinds of reasons but it was that the powers that be actually incited the workers to collaborate in the firing by voting on whether their co- their co-worker should stay or go." Unquote. So that's sort of the seed for the film, is this idea of what if you have co-workers voting on the fate of another co-worker? I think that's a really fascinating premise. And so they take that idea and they let it percolate for quite a while. We get two days, one night out of it. And it's almost like this morality tale, right? A little bit. And even though this exact scenario may not have played out, you know, it's not like they read a newspaper article about this exact thing happening. They did feel like the idea itself really got to issues of like ruthless competition under capitalism and obsession with performance at the workplace and the lack of solidarity that can be in a lot of workplaces. I wonder if this film actually resonates more with like an American audience than a European one. I don't know. I'm putting it out there because the because unions in the United States are so weak. I mean, they're sort of at an all-time low right now. I don't know what the union situation is in Europe. I mean, I'm just going to say that in my own mind, I feel like Europe, there may be more protections for workers, but I think it would depend probably on what country you live in. I'm certainly not well-versed in this, you know, of what every country's union uh, is like, what the situation is. But here in the United States, especially where I live in the rural South, unions are dead. You know, there's no unions. The worker has very little power or control over their life when they work at factories and places like that. And I think that is why Bernie Sanders has become so popular, why democratic socialism has become so popular, is people wanting to take back power in their lives and wanting to have more control, right? And the the destruction of unions, I think, has led to a lot of what we've seen the last few decades and workers having so little power and so little say, such low wages and not having benefits, not having health insurance and all kinds of things. When you're in a union, you have some kind of protection. You have some kind of bargaining power. And the people at this plant, this solar panel plant, do not have that. The brothers purposely chose a solar panel company because a lot of them are not unionized. That's what they say, I think, in the Criterion interview. They said that if you only have, like, I think if you have less than 50 workers at a place, you're not required to have a union, or it's very difficult to have a union. They purposely wanted to put the story in an environment that's non-unionized in order to explore some of these issues, especially about solidarity and the way that workers can be pitted against each other. And Jean-Pierre said, quote, what was important for us 
was to show someone excluded because she is considered weak, because she doesn't perform well enough. The film praises this non-performing character who finds strength and courage through the fight she conducts with her husband, unquote. So under capitalism, and I'm going to try not to throw around these like academic terms or anything, but under capitalism, you know, the worker has fewer rights and so much of your life becomes defined by your productivity. You know, I think certain people can be singled out as weak, as not going fast enough, as not performing enough. Your whole identity becomes defined by your productivity, about your job, whether you have a job or you're unemployed. You know, in in so many countries now, that's how you're defined. If you don't have a job, you're worthless. If you do have a job, you have more self-worth. Sandra is seen as this weak figure, right? Oh, she has depression. Oh, you know, she's not able to keep up. But actually, she's maybe the strongest person in the film. She has moral strength. She has integrity. She stands up for something that she believes in. That's what we should be praising, not this rivalry and this competition and the way that the workplace often dehumanizes people. You know, we don't talk enough about jobs that are like hard, that are hard on people's bodies and you know, often in the mainstream or in TV shows or movies, we don't see people working. We don't see people at jobs. If we do, it's usually like an office job. Even millennials, even the representation of millennials is very focused on like cities and people working like in offices. You know, you don't see a representation of somebody like me, like a a rural southern millennial, you know, a working class millennial or some a millennial working at Walmart, a millennial working at a fast food place. You know, where I work, that's the jobs that are pretty much available. There's not a lot of office jobs and stuff like that. There are factories and and things like that and we don't see that and it becomes very invisible. And so I appreciate films like this that make this particular experience visible because there are so many workplace environments where you are deeply dehumanized. And I'll talk in a little while about my own experiences with that because I have worked at a factory and it was a pretty punishing and brutal experience for me. And yet it's something like that is rarely seen in cinema. And, you know, by focusing on a non-unionized environment, what I love so much about this film and why I think it's kind of radical is like, it's not about blaming individuals. It's about indicting an entire system. It's, it's not about making Sandra into a perfect angel. She gets her humanity and her complexity too, but it's also not about demonizing her co-workers who voted against her because they could have easily done that. You know, I think maybe an American or a Hollywood film would have like, oh, look at, I think you would have seen them be like very, very stereotypical, right? Two Days, One Night is the opposite of that. None of the people in this film are stereotypes. They're real people with real issues, with real reasons for voting for that bonus. And they're not the bad guys and Sandra's not the bad guy. The 
the bad thing is the system itself that um, that puts them in competition this way with each other and forces them to lose their humanity to one another and lose their solidarity. Maybe the film is not just about Sandra finding her strength, but maybe it's also about some of these co-workers finding their own humanity. Because several times throughout the film when she goes to people, you can tell that they're ashamed that they didn't vote for her. And so the second vote gives them a chance to redeem themselves and to maybe do the right and the moral thing. But that doesn't mean that the people who still vote against Sandra, it doesn't make them bad people. We don't see them that way. We see that they have children and they have bills and they have issues and that this money will help them and that they have second jobs and they're struggling. And so I love how this film, by putting it in the environment they did at this solar panel company that's not unionized, it shifts our um, focus from the individual to the system to the larger system that has put these people in this position. Um, you know, Jean, maybe if there is a bad person, it's Jean-Marc, right? With his power, wanting to have power over others. So that's maybe um, a bad person in it. But we see everybody's humanity for the most part. And we see how it's really a system that has done this. There was one month of really intense rehearsals for the film and then it was shot for 11 weeks. Many of the scenes in this film were done dozens of times. I I guess maybe the brothers are known for that, for doing a lot of takes. They want to do a lot of repetition so that for the actors, the movements and the dialogue just becomes second nature. That they don't even have to think about it. They do it over and over and over again. And sometimes there would be 80 takes. It got up to 80 takes for some scenes. And Marion Cotillard talked about that in some interviews. But she didn't mind. (laughs) She didn't care. She really wanted to work with the brothers. And she said that it was the strongest connection she'd ever had with directors was on this film. And the film was shot chronologically so that you can, and I think that was perfect, so that you can feel, especially with Sandra, the way that she changes over the course of the film, how she starts in this really vulnerable and fragile place. And of course, she's always in that place. You know, I don't think, it's it's not like she becomes a different person. She still has depression. She still has her struggles, but she's able to get to a different place by the end of the film where I think there is some hope for her and I wonder if you could have even had that if it hadn't been shot chronologically. It helps to see the actor develop along with the role I would imagine. And I do want to talk a bit about Marion Cotillard and her preparation for the film. For me personally, Marion Cotillard is one of my favorite contemporary actresses, if not my favorite. I absolutely love her whether it's La Vie en Rose which I definitely hope to do an episode about or Rust and Bone or Little White Lies or um, or this film. I just, I love her work. I love what she does. I, I hope that she does even more roles like this. She's just, I think, a magnificent actress. I, I could go on and on about her. You know, she's just absolutely one of my favorites. I still remember seeing La Vie en Rose when it came out in 2007. I found the DVD at Blockbuster. <laughs> Uh, back then, they would have these sales where you could get four DVDs for $20. And I saw the cover of this film. I had not heard of it. I just live in a little small town. I was 
you know, like 17 years old or 18 years old at the time. I just saw the cover. I didn't know anything about the film. And I just thought, well, I'm I'm going to get this film. Watched it. Didn't know anything about Edith Piaf. Had never heard of Edith Piaf. And I fell deeply and madly in love with that film, with Marion Cotillard, with Edith Piaf. So I'll definitely be do, doing an episode eventually about the film. She was an absolute revelation to me in that film. And I was so happy when she won the Oscar, and I think I was probably watching the Academy Awards that night. I used to watch them pretty religiously. I don't anymore. I don't really like award shows anymore now that I've become like a really serious cinephile. Because back in 2007, I wasn't really a cinephile yet. I liked films, but I wasn't like serious about them the way I am now. I just don't like award shows. I don't think that the right films get honored or the right actors and stuff. So I just don't take much pleasure in them anymore. But it was so satisfying when Marion won that Oscar. I was so happy for her. So I think Marion is like one of our finest actresses and I hope that she gets chances to do even more great roles. Um, She actually created a really elaborate backstory for Sandra and I am saying Sandra, I'm just saying I don't want to do the French inflection of it, Sandra. You know, I I don't want to try to have a French accent because I just sound stupid and pretentious. So I'm just going to say Sandra throughout this episode. But she had this huge backstory that was not in the script. But that's what she called upon when she had to do these scenes where she's doing 80 takes, right? And some of these scenes she had to cry. So she had to cry over and over and over again. And so she would call upon all these stories and all this information that she had created about Sandra. She imagined her having siblings and parents. She imagined her life during the depression and how the depression affected her family and so on. And I just found that interesting. The thing about Marion on screen is that I think she has like a very deep humanity about her. There is just something about when she is in a film, and this is how I felt about her portrayal of Edith Piaf. I literally felt like I was watching Edith Piaf. It's rare. It's it's not something that you see often. I mean, not a lot of roles come to mind for me. You know, maybe The Passion of Joan of Arc, right? With Renee Falconetti or Jenna Rollins in A Woman Under the Influence or Isabel Hubert in The Piano Teacher, Nicole Kidman in Birth. Those are just a few touchstones for me personally when it comes to acting and some actresses and performances that I love. And Marion would be with that, you know, and her performance in La Vie en Rose would be there because I, I literally thought I was looking at Edith Piaf. I, I thought that she had become this woman, that she had dissolved like her skin or something that she had literally entered the life of another person or the body of another person like she was Edith Piaf down to like her toes right every movement every everything she did with her face her eyes like everything she was that role she inhabited it that's what Marion brings to it is just like this seriousness this depth I don't even know how to talk about it and I felt that with two days one night too is that she is like she is this role she is 
Sandra. I don't know how she does it. She actually has in the past had trouble shaking characters. She said that that happened to her with Lavion Rose, that she had a really difficult time sort of letting go of that role of like coming out of it and surfacing from it. But she said that since she has a family now, she has two children. She has a partner with um, Guillaume Canet. He is beautiful. I love me some Guillaume Canet. (sighs) Let's not talk about it. (laughs) He is so gorgeous and he is a really good actor and director. He's like really underrated. Like see Little White Lies. He directed that and I absolutely love Little White Lies and they just came out with a sequel to it and I definitely would like to see that. I, y'all, I love French cinema and it just kills me how few French films make it over here in the United States. Like, yeah, you'll get sort of the mainstream French stuff, I guess. But I want to like, I want to see the French films that nobody talks about. Like, I want to see like the unknown under the radar French films and it's really hard to find them here in the U.S. It kills me. I love French cinema. But Guillaume Canet, he's like a, he's really talented. I don't, I don't know why he doesn't get talked about enough. And he's also really good um, in this film I recently saw, Next Time I'll Aim for the Heart. And it's about a true story, a killer in France who killed some women and he was actually a police officer. It's like a chilling film and Guillaume plays the man. He's like an actor in it and his acting just blew me away. So him and Marion Cotillard together, this is like my couple. This is like my royalty or something. I absolutely love that they're a couple and that that they have children and all that. They actually kind of fascinate me. I wish they were like, is there gossip about them? Now I feel like I need to learn more about this relationship. (laughs) Oh Lord. But I love them together. So since she has gotten with her hot man, Guillaume, and had her children, (laughs) she's better able to process what she's going through on set like she's able to more easily let go of the character and so I guess she was able to do that with Sandra but I would imagine that Sandra would be a hard character to shake but she connected really deeply to Sandra she actually didn't have to do a lot of research about depression because in an interview it might have been the one with the Criterion Collection their version of the film their edition of the film also has an interview with her she said that she's never had like a full-blown depression but she's sort of come close to it or she's felt it a little bit. And so that gave her a sense of what it would be like. She was asked by the brothers to lose her Parisian accent and to have more of a Belgian accent. I don't watch a lot of Belgian films. I watch a lot of French films. I can't totally, obviously I can't tell the difference between like the French speaking people in France and then French speaking people in Belgium. I didn't notice as much of a difference, but I'm sure if you're French, you obviously can tell the difference in the accents but she didn't she didn't use a dialect coach for that she she actually just listened a lot like in rehearsal to the other Belgian actors that were around her and sort of tried to pick up their accent in rehearsals and I really love this quote that she said about acting it's from an interview that she did with Variety and I think this shows you just her dedication to it and her love for it I think she is just masterful as an actress she says quote I always 
always wanted to travel the world and to travel a human being's emotions, to understand a little more about ourselves by becoming someone who's so far from who I am. I think it must come from this really strong desire that I had when I was a kid. I was fascinated by Peter Sellers and by Sir Laurence Olivier. From one movie to the next, you didn't recognize them, and that's really what I wanted to do. I guess that you attract what you need in life, and I attracted a super wide playground." Unquote. And I think she does that from film to film. She she becomes like this different person. You almost don't really recognize her. She's had a really diverse body of work so far as well. And I did want to speak about the ending for a moment, just the inspiration for it. And obviously I'll talk more in depth about it once I get to my film analysis. But the ending of the film, this is what I found out in my research, was really inspired by a Satya Jit Ray film called The Big City, called The Big City. And I happen to have an episode about The Big City. And I also happen to be a huge film... I also happen to be a huge fan of Satyajit Ray. He's this amazing Indian director. He did the Apu trilogy, and I also love The Big City. And so the brothers in that Criterion Collection interview said that they were inspired by this Satyajit Ray film. They had considered ending the film in a lot of different ways. Um, Sandra committing suicide was a possibility. Another possibility was that she won the vote, but they didn't feel like that was realistic. They really wanted to put her in the shoes of all the people that she had visited throughout the film, you know, because she's going to them and saying, will you vote for me? Will you have solidarity with me? And then she's put in a position where she has to have solidarity with another person. And she, she refuses, you know, to let him be fired so that she can have her job. So they were inspired by the big city in which a woman refuses to take the job of the woman who trained her. And so it ends up with her being unemployed and her husband becoming employed. And it's a really beautiful ending if you haven't seen the film where they just, it's its hopeful. They talk about how it's a big city and they'll find work. They'll find another job. That's how they decided the ending for Two Days, One Night. They have, they have Sandra keep her integrity and walk away from the factory and and this sense that she will she will survive she will keep going she will find another job i love the connections that i found through my research to other films that i have covered whether it's three colors blue or the big city i thought that was really fascinating so i'm gonna just walk through the film and talk about scenes and talk about things that I feel and connect to. And the two, the two big things that are really personal for me with this film are depression, because I myself struggle with depression, and also the way it looks at class, the way it looks at like a factory environment, because I worked in a factory when I uh, graduated high school in 2008. I worked at a, a sewing factory where I sewed fabric onto cards. It was not an easy environment. It actually ended up affecting my health. I've had health issues ever since, like issues with breathing, issues with my heart that I blame on working in that factory. And it was a really dehumanizing experience. Our productivity was a big deal and they would put our numbers like our productivity numbers on a bulletin board so that everybody could see what everybody else was doing and if you got too low or you were getting too slow they would highlight your name so already you can feel the competition you can feel the weak the weaker people 
being singled out. And I could really relate to Sandra's experience of that, of how she is seen as like the weakest link or she is seen as a weak person by her co-workers. And also when I was in that factory, the workers were really pitted against each other. I would say that. And I think that the management and the people who owned the factory pitted people against each other, often through race too. It was a really diverse factory. I don't think the South really gets the credit it deserves for for there being diversity. Where I grew up, there was like a halal store. I saw Muslims growing up where I lived, and I lived in the rural South, you know, in North Carolina. I saw Muslim people. There were people of color, African Americans, Hispanic people, all kinds of different people. And when I worked at this factory, there was a woman from Pakistan that worked there. There were African American women, and there were many Mexican and Hispanic women that worked there as well. And there was also a lot of racial tension in the factory, I would say. And I think management like took advantage of that. And they did sort of pit people against each other. Like sometimes when work was slow, certain people were brought in and and put in a different department so that they could keep working. And then other people weren't. There was just a lot of like resentment among people at times. You know, did people get along? I guess on the surface they did. But I think behind the scenes there was a lot of tension and and stuff like that so it was a horrible place to work (laughs) it was just it was not good people there was not a sense of solidarity there was a sense of competition and rivalry and my mom worked at the same factory and she became targeted by some of the people there just went through a horrible experience in the way that she was treated by them you know they they really treated her terribly in a way that I think really scarred her and wounded her even to this day where when she talks about it at the cruelty that they showed towards her she still has trouble talking about it and while she was working there her mom died and my grandma died while she was working there and you know it's just it was a terrible experience all around and um the reason that I ended up working at that factory was because when I was 16 my father died and this was an emotionally devastating experience for me and one that I've really never recovered from. I talk about him constantly on this podcast. So uh, any episode that you listen to, he'll probably pop up because it was so painful and so devastating to me to lose him. So it was not just an emotionally devastating experience. It was financially devastating too, where here's my mom who's now a single mother with a 16-year-old daughter. I didn't go to college right out of high school. You know, I didn't have the money for that. I didn't have the ability to do that. So I went to this factory to try to help my mom and to try to help us survive. That's what I was doing. That's what I had to do. And I wasn't going to leave her after my father had died and then her mother died and we were just a wreck. You know, we were devastated and we went through hell. We were alone and isolated and we we really only had each other through all of that. And so I certainly wasn't going to leave her. And I emotionally couldn't do it because his death caused my mental health to deteriorate. I had terrible panic attacks. I had anxiety. I had really terrible depression. And as a working class person, or I guess at that point we were kind of poor, really, um, I didn't have access to any kind of mental health, you know, care, didn't have insurance, 
So I was basically in hell. It's a very infernal time in my life. It's a dark, ugly time in my life. And being in that factory was even darker. There were no windows. There was no solidarity. There was no kindness. There was a lot of cruelty and competition. And I try not to be bitter about it. You know, I try to think that all of us were put in a difficult situation. You know, we're working ourselves to death, right? for minimum wage or a little bit above it. You know, that's what I was making at this place was a little bit over $7 an hour. It wasn't unionized because no, nothing in the South is unionized. It was just a terrible experience in my life, not to mention what it did to my health. And then the recession hit in 2008 and I ended up losing my job there because of the recession. They downsized, they were getting rid of people. And obviously my numbers were not very high. So I was the weakest link. I was Sandra in some ways, you know, and I got eliminated. My position got eliminated. So this film intersects with my life in a lot of interesting ways of the experience of working in a factory, the experience of what that kind of environment does to people, what financial precarity does to people and the tensions that exist you know, within that, the dynamics that are in that. So, yeah. And then on top of that, my struggle with depression, my ongoing struggle with depression that continues to this day. So I think this is an important film about class, but I think even more than that, it's an important film about depression. And I don't know if people talk about that enough with this film. I don't know if they do. I I don't read reviews and stuff like that when I'm going to talk about a film. But the brothers talked about uh, including depression in the film. In an interview with Vulture, they said, The element of depression is important because it makes her more vulnerable. It makes her more fragile. But we wanted to celebrate vulnerability and fragility because it's the opposite of what is being pushed in society today, which is victory to the strongest. At the same time, we didn't want to explain why Sandra is depressed. We wanted to talk about how she gets out of it, unquote. So I love that they're taking this idea of depression, you know, that people would maybe look down on or see as a weakness. And they're saying, you know what? Sandra's fragility and her vulnerability make her human. They make her empathetic and they actually make her strong. And I think that's a really beautiful message that this woman, you know, who... Uh, here they come, here the tears come. This woman who can barely get off her couch at the beginning of the film, that's the first image of her that we see is her laying there and she looks so fragile and she struggles at the beginning. At first, she doesn't even want to take on this odyssey. I call it an odyssey. That's really what she goes through in the film. At first, she doesn't want to do it. You know, she fights against it. She doesn't feel capable or strong enough to do it. And you just imagine what it takes for her to do it. To look these people in the face who voted against her, who did not value her the way that she would like to be valued. And not only does she do it, she brings compassion and kindness and generosity because she knows what it's like to struggle. She knows what it's like to hurt. And she doesn't judge them. She doesn't yell at them or hurt them. She understands why they voted the way they did. But she also doesn't back down and she makes her case. It's just amazing 
what she starts as at the beginning. She's really in this stasis in a lot of ways. You know, she's lying there. I think she probably feels very defeated, but she pulls through it. She pushes through it and she comes out the other side. It's this beautiful, I mean, I'm glad they didn't end it in this really morose way. And that might be a criticism that some people have with the film, that it's manipulative or something like that, or it doesn't end in a realistic way. But I don't think that every social realist film has to have a really sad, violent, ending. You know, I think if it ended with her death or her suicide, I I just, I don't think you would be doing right by that character. I don't think that's who she is. I think they had to give you an ending that fit with the character. And there's nothing wrong with having a hopeful ending. You know, not everything that we go through in life is morose and, and terrible. I mean, even though I lost my father, even though I went through that terrible experience at that factory, I'm still here today. You know, I'm still here. I'm still surviving. And I've had moments of terrible depression, moments where I didn't think I could go on. I have had suicidal thoughts. I came very close to suicide after my father died. I poured an entire bottle of of Tylenol into my hands and thought about swallowing them. And I didn't. I didn't do it. So have I had really deep, dark moments? Yeah. But I've also had beautiful, hopeful moments. You know, here I am doing this podcast. Here I am sharing my passion for film. I never thought this would happen. I never thought that I'd have people listen to me or care what I have to say about films. I mean, I'm not some kind of famous podcaster here, by no means. This is a very small podcast, but it gives me some hope. It gives me some happiness. And so even at the darkest times in your life, sometimes you do find something that pulls you through. The thing is, is that Sandra is not alone. Sandra has Manu, her husband. She has her children. You know, she has things to hold on to, just like I had my mother you know, after, after all this death, after the death of my father and my grandma, and then my uncle died as well, all within a three-year period, my mom and I had each other. That's why I didn't take those pills. And that's why I think Sandra keeps going, is because of that unconditional love that she has in her own family. Of course, I'm already talking about the ending, but I just, you know, I just wanted to, I took a detour there. (laughs) So the film begins with her sleeping. And I think it's so interesting that it begins with her sleeping. It begins with her laying there with her passive, right? Unresponsive in a way. And then the ending is so much more active. And um, she's walking away from the camera. She's moving. She's a different person in some ways. But she's awoken from her sleep and she she starts to cry. And all throughout the film, she will struggle with this, with her with her crying. She will tell herself not to cry and then she will cry for no reason. Although I think if you lose your job, you have a pretty good reason to cry. <laughs> I mean, personally, it's it's an upsetting thing. Often she'll try to hide her tears from people. She'll turn away from them. She'll go to the bathroom. I think Marion Cotillard talked about this in some interviews where she had to understand why Sandra wanted to cry in those moments. And she had to figure out how to do that, you know, how to cry in that way so many times. I think from the first frame, from the first scene of this film, you care about Sandra. Like you feel this connection to her. You feel her fragility. You feel like she's like barely hanging on 
in a lot of ways. And we learned that Sandra's co-workers have taken a vote. She went through a bout of depression and she had left work for a little while, but she was going to come back and resume her work there. What happened was that management had her co-workers vote on whether she should have her position at the company or they should be given a bonus, a thousand euro bonus, which in the, in like dollars comes to about a thousand dollars. It's like 1200 or something like that. That's a lot of money by any standards. And so they decided they would eliminate her position and receive a bonus. But her friend, Juliette, wants to get a second vote done because she feels like the first vote was tainted because the foreman, Jean-Marc, went and told some people that, you know, no matter what happened, somebody was going to be fired anyways. You know, that if they didn't uh, vote for the bonus, that, you know, someone was going to be fired. If it wasn't Sandra, it could be somebody else or maybe even be one of them. So they were put in this really impossible situation and they were fearful to not vote for the bonus. And so Sandra's husband, Manu, he, from the beginning, is like the engine of this film in a way. He is the emotional and physical support for Sandra. And he is there by her side. He's also her biggest fan and her biggest champion throughout the film. The film's about Sandra, but it's equally about the people that she visits and it's about Manu really. It's about all of them. At first, Sandra does not want to do this. You know, uh, Manu tells her, you know, there's going to be a second vote. Why don't you, it's like a Friday, and he says, why don't you go over the weekend, talk to the different people. So the vote went that 14 people voted for the bonus out of 16. So two people voted for her, and it was Juliet and I think a man named Robert. So she has two people, and he tells her, you only need like seven more to get a majority. You can do this. Go and talk to the different people. Go and talk to them face-to-face. If they see you, then maybe they'll change their vote because it's much easier to to do something like that when the person isn't in front of you. And the company also took advantage of the fact that Sandra had been out for several months or a month. I don't know if it's clear how long she's been out of work. So they haven't even been interacting with her on a regular basis. So it's even easier to vote her out, right? But Manu tells her, no, go and try this. Do this. Try to convince them. You could, you could do it. She just sees it as hopeless. You know, she's taking pills. She's taking Xanax because you can tell she's struggling and she doesn't want to do it and he tells her you need to fight for your job you've got to do this so Sandra and her friend Juliet they go to like the the big boss of the company Mr. Dumont they ask for another vote because Jean-Marc had intimidated and lied to people and so Dumont says okay we'll do a secret ballot or we'll do it Monday and so that gives her the weekend that gives her the two days and the one night to try to convince people to vote her way. And that's the setup of this film. And I think it's brilliant because in a lot of ways, this is like a suspenseful film. That's what's so interesting. Like this is art house all the way, right? Naturalistic acting and, um, you know, all the hallmarks of art house cinema. But it's so suspenseful when you watch it for the first time. You don't know. Like, you absolutely think from one person to the next, she might get this. She might convince all these people to vote for her. She can do this. 
You don't know how each interaction is going to go. That's suspenseful. And then by the end of the weekend, you don't know how the vote is going to go on Monday. So when she shows up and they do the vote, you have no idea what's going to happen. And so there's a great deal of suspense that I think sort of propels the film forward. Like while I was watching it, it went by so quickly. I couldn't believe how quickly it went by. I think there's something about the bodies on the screen too. Like there's a lot of kinetic energy about the film there's a lot of movement you know Sandra is walking down the street she's walking upstairs she's interacting with people it's like there's a lot of movement and activity in the frame and so there's just this energy and action and suspense about the film that you don't necessarily expect in an art house kind of film right Sandra goes back home and she's already struggling. She got Dumont to give her the vote, but she doesn't want to eat dinner with her kids and her husband. They're having pizza, I think. And the daughter says the most heartbreaking thing. She's She asks Manu um, if the mom, if Sandra is, if she'll get sick again, if she loses her job. So you can already tell that these children they know what's happening to their mother. They know that Sandra is struggling. It's such a heartbreaking moment. You know, she goes up to bed and she's like heartbroken that only two people voted for her, that only Juliet and Robert even thought of her. She says it's like she doesn't even exist. She feels like she's nothing and she starts to cry again. This scene is just heartbreaking in so many ways and I think it reminds us of the way that capitalism really dehumanizes people you know people get reduced to their jobs to the positions that they hold how much money they make and their humanity gets completely stripped out Sandra is more than just a worker at a solar panel plant right that's not the totality of who she is our jobs are not the totality of who we are. And our worth shouldn't be based on it, on how much money we make. But increasingly, that's what's happened here in the United States, where if you don't have a job, if you're unemployed, if you're struggling, if you have a disability, if you have mental illness that makes it hard for you to do a job, you know, you're nothing. You don't deserve health care. You don't deserve food. You know, they want to put um, work requirements on food stamps, on Medicaid. There are different places trying to do that. So if you don't have a job, you are just seen as like a non-person. You're not seen as like a human being at all. And I'd rather live in a world where all of us have inherent humanity and dignity, no matter if we have a job or if we work or not. And I think somebody with depression, it's even harder for them. They're already isolated. They already feel worthless and like they're not enough. And so when you add in something like losing a job or struggling with employment, it can be even harder. I mean, I found that I struggled with that a lot, you know, with working as somebody with depression. It's hard to, it's hard to be productive. It's hard to keep up with the demand on your body and your mind when you have depression, I think. You know, when you don't want to get up, like it fogs your mind. You can't always think clearly. You can't always be the person that you want to be because of depression that it slows you down it makes things much harder for you and there's that scene where she just falls to the ground she like collapses and Manu is there he's right beside of her and holds her and he tells her that she does exist and he says that he loves her this scene just oh god 
it really made me cry. And I feel like this film is also a portrait of love. It's not just about class and it's not just about depression and a worker solidarity and things like that, you know, maybe these sort of bigger issues. It's also about something very personal and that's love of someone loving another person through their pain and their depression and telling them that they have worth and that they're sane and they do exist. I think that, you know, because of the dehumanizing treatment that we can face in the workplace, especially, that we need relationships that are a counterbalance to that, that are a counterbalance to that inhumanity. Those bonds that we form are so important and life-sustaining. Manu believes in Sandra, and he loves her unconditionally. She's not just a cog, right? She's not just a worker. She's not just any of that. She's a mother and a wife and a friend and a person. And she's loved. And she exists to those people in her life. She may not exist to Jean-Marc or some of those co-workers that voted against her, but she exists to the people that love her. And this film, I think, is about her being reminded of that, that she does exist. She does exist to other people. The Dardan brothers say that in that Criterion Collection interview. They say that that's what the film is about, is about this woman finding that other people exist and that finding that she exists to other people and discovering that. And maybe it's about her reconnecting to other people. Depression isolates us so much. It alienates us. It makes us feel alone and worthless and all of those things. This film is a reminder that it's so important to reconnect with ourselves and with other people if we can. And Sandra does have people around her that love her and that care about her. Everything's set into motion. She's going to meet each co-worker. She's going to do it over two days and one night on the weekend. She starts finding addresses for the different people. This fight is what brings her out of her stasis, out of, it brings her up off the floor. You know, she has to fight for this. She has to fight for herself, right? That's what she has to do. And in a lot of ways, it almost feels like this David and Goliath type thing. You know, she's the little person, she's David. And here's the Goliath, you know, this company that even put these workers in this position and created these kinds of heartless rules. But the the co-workers as a body are sort of a Goliath too, that she has to meet all of them and try to convince them. And there's so many more of them than there is of her. And so, yeah, it's like a David and Goliath type thing. But as I said, it's not indicting the people the co-workers. It's really indicting the system, the company, the larger ish, the larger system there and environment. So right off the bat, the first person that she contacts says that he'll change his vote, Kader or Cater. If she had started with a no, it might have been harder, but she starts with a yes. She starts with like a victory already. Um, and that's sort of, I think, what she needs to kick her into gear and to set her off on her odyssey. She realizes that maybe it is possible to convince some of these people to give up their bonus. And think about the power of that. Think about the power of that message that it sends to Sandra. You know, at the end, she doesn't win. But eight people said, I'm going to give up this thousand euro bonus, this thousand dollar bonus for you. I mean, think about what that would say to you that these people who could obviously use that money 
for all kinds of things in their lives. They are willing to sacrifice that bonus for her. And they are saying, your life is more important than this money. Your life is more important than this bonus. And for a woman who has just gone through one of the darkest periods of her life, where she had to leave work because she was so depressed, you know, imagine what she went through and how alone she felt and worthless. And then, you know, to hear the vote, to hear all those people vote against you and makes you feel even more worthless. And then to, to see eight people who say, you're not worthless. You're worth fighting for. You're worth saving. We're not going to throw you away. And even though it doesn't happen and she doesn't get to stay, like God, she has to go on this journey. Kader giving her that first vote is exactly what she needs and it just it sets her it's you know sets her on that path and the thing about Marion god it's like when she falls to the ground you know when she's crying it's like you just feel the humanity of this character you instantly care about Sandra and I think some of us see ourselves in Sandra I certainly see myself in her you know Marion might be a international star and a cinematic goddess um that's the way i see her as like a goddess of the cinema but i don't care you know and maybe some people criticize the brothers for casting a star i don't know there are people who will criticize anything and everything i promise you especially online i believe every move that she makes and every word that she says in this film I believe her 100% that she is Sandra. And I've always felt that this is Marion's gift, is the way that she slips into the skin of other women and breathes life into them. And I do believe she's one of our greatest actresses, and you see it in every scene of this film, from the sad moments to the uplifting ones, you know, from the way that she walks. There's so many scenes in this film of her walking, like her gait, the way she holds her shoulders, her posture, how she slumped over at times. You feel it. You feel her. You feel her energy. You feel her sadness, but then you also feel like when she feels a sense of victory or happiness. You feel that too. I don't know if I'll go through every person she visits. There's this guy, Willie, that she goes to visit and him and his wife are struggling. The wife like stands beside him the whole time and they're actually like, they salvage floor tiles to make extra money. And so he needs, he needs the money also for his daughter's college and his wife's out of work as well. This, I guess, interaction with Willie is a good example of the way the film shows the different experiences of all the people. And the way the brothers talked about this was that every person she meets is just as important as she is. That in these scenes with the other people, you should feel like that person is just as real as Sandra and just as important. That they're the star just as much as Sandra is. So they are equal to her. And you see their perspective and you see their struggle. And like I said, every scene has suspense to it. When she goes up to them, you don't know how they're going to react. You don't know if they might get belligerent or ugly. And you don't know how it's going to end. Are they going to say that they'll vote for her? Are they, will they not? So every scene builds on top of the other scenes. They all have like this unknown ending until you get to it. And so I think that suspense keeps you enthralled 
throughout the whole film keeps you watching too because you wonder well what are they gonna say are they gonna vote for is she gonna is she gonna persuade them and it's not like she does anything wild like she doesn't she's not a car salesman or something but she also doesn't attack them either she doesn't come up to them and say hey why didn't you vote for me why were you such an asshole like she she doesn't do that she brings so much kindness and generosity to those interactions like I can't even overstate that like she could easily she could easily have an attitude she could easily say well why didn't you vote for me you've worked with me for years like what's wrong with you and she doesn't approach it that way at all she's just pretty matter-of-fact and straightforward you know there's gonna be a second vote because Jean-Marc intimidated some people I wanted to ask you to vote for me she just makes her case it's really straightforward and when they say no she doesn't get ugly and she doesn't push them she just says okay I understand it's a lot of money to give up and then some some people won't even talk to her like Nadine where she goes up to the intercom and she's asking for her and the little girl Um, is on the intercom and then you can hear Nadine in the background so there are some people that can't even face her and I think um, Sandra was really good friends with Nadine and that does hurt that she won't even speak to her that's sort of a sad moment so she goes to see people and then periodically she meets up with Manu who uh, works at a restaurant this is important I think that throughout the day Throughout the two days, she meets up with Manu and he's there helping her along. That in her moments of like hopelessness, when she hasn't convinced someone or when she's struggling, he's right there by her side. And she at one point goes outside to cry and she's a little bit obscured by this truck where she's crying and he comes out there. He stands with her. He stands beside her and touches her and holds her. And I think his support of her is really beautiful. I think when you're someone who struggles with depression, it can be really hard to find other people who understand and who are compassionate. It's a terrible feeling, the isolation that it creates. And then you also have to go through people not really being there for you or understanding or thinking that you're faking it or you're exaggerating it or or something like that. Because there's such a lack of understanding about depression or anxiety or other forms of mental illness and and conditions that people have and I think that's why this relationship is so beautiful is like here is a partner here is someone supporting someone with depression and not making them feel bad about it not making them feel ashamed not making them feel like oh my god why can't you just stop crying why can't you just deal with it right that's not what this film's about at all it's about a loving supportive encouraging relationship and Sandra desperately needs that and I'm so glad that she has it I'm so glad that she's with someone that loves her so much and also I want to say that I really appreciate films that show women this way because I feel like so much of the time like I feel that way the way that Sandra is portrayed crying and emotional and struggling and you know the way Marion plays her it's just you can feel all of it in her body you can feel her fragility and her vulnerability and I feel that way a lot of the time I just feel like I don't fit in the world and I have so many struggles on a daily basis with anxiety, with depression, with my physical health issues. I I often feel like my experience is not really represented anywhere and so I do appreciate films like this. You can 
you can feel the pressure that Sandra is under and she carries it in her body. But I also love that the film doesn't just show Sandra crying and giving up. It also shows her her participating. She's not just passive. It shows her talking to the co-workers. It shows her giving what she has. And I like that too, because I'm like that. Do I have days where I really struggle? Yeah. And then I have other days where I feel a little bit stronger. I'm not one thing all the time. The film shows Sandra fighting for herself, right? And it shows that even if you have depression, you also can have that in you too. That you can struggle, but you can also you can also push through it at times. It just depends. It depends on what you're going through. You know, sometimes you have those moments when you can't get out of bed and you can't face life, and you can't face other people, you can't face the day. And then there are other times where you do gather the ability to do that. It can ebb and flow. It can ebb and flow. And just because you're in bed and struggling doesn't make you a failure. It doesn't make you weak. It doesn't make you less than. It it shows Sandra, I think, in all her complexity. Because she does have times where she's struggling to get up. She's struggling to go on, but she finds a way to go on. That's just a beautiful thing about her. Her ability to to survive and, and to keep going. It's like, I guess this film is a good example of it's not the, what is it? It's not the end, it's the journey. Sandra doesn't win in the end. But she tried. She could have stayed in bed. She could have decided not to leave her house or even give it a shot. But she did. Even though she lost, she gained something through that. And I know that sounds cheesy, but she did. You know, maybe it it was a reminder of other people's humanity. It was a reminder that there is some hope. And sometimes when you're depressed or when you're suicidal, sometimes it takes little things like that to remind you to keep going, that there is hope. You know, Sandra starts the film alone in her depression, sort of isolated from everybody. But as the film unfolds, you really see her returning to the world, returning to community and to her family, her husband, her children, the co-workers. I think she really breaks through that isolation of depression. A big scene in the film is when Sandra visits Timor. I guess that's the way you pronounce it. And he is coaching soccer. He's at a soccer field. She goes to him and as soon as he sees her, he starts to break down because he's ashamed that he voted for the bonus when in the past she had helped him. And he tells her that he will vote in her favor in the new ballot. You know, the thing about this, what's sad is that the the vote itself sort of reveals to some of these people that they're not who they thought they were. You know, I think as we go about our lives, we like to think that we're good and we're moral and we do the right thing. But sometimes you get in situations where you realize maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was. Maybe I'm not as moral as I thought I was. Because on an everyday basis, our morality is not necessarily challenged you know, we don't get into situations where we necessarily have to really make a hard choice or make a moral or ethical choice. We don't often get into those dilemmas. But this vote, it's its heartbreaking for some of these people because they know that they should have voted for her. They know that that was the right and the good thing to do, but they didn't. Something about them was revealed to themselves 
And you can tell that some of them, I think, are relieved to have a second chance and a do-over, you know, to be able to maybe be the people that they thought they were. But of course, they were put in an impossible situation because of the company, because of the system, because of being in a non-unionized environment. You know, there were things at play that were much larger than them. You know, I don't want to put all this onto individual morality, It's easy to say that when you're not in the situation. It's easy to say that you're good and moral when you're never having to face some of the situations that people have to face. It's due to things beyond their control and a larger system of power that's in place. But I think Timur was glad to be able to ask for forgiveness, to say that he was sorry, and to make it right through the second vote. And he also offers to call another co-worker named Miguel and get him to change his vote. So right there, Sandra has gotten two more votes. And she walks away smiling, and you can tell that it gives her um, a sense of hope. Now, the next person, Hisham turns her down. So it kind of goes back and forth. She'll have, um, you know, she'll have people who want to help her and then she'll have people who turn her down. Although she'll come back to Hisham. I'll come back to Hisham. And the thing about Sandra's though, the way she handles the whole situation is like, to me, the definition of grace. She's not angry or bitter or hostile when she goes to see them. And, you know, I think if I were in that situation, I would be so mad. I don't think I would be a nice person. I don't think I'd be a kind person this in this situation. I would feel really defensive. I would feel really hurt by people doing something like this. I mean, I'm hurt by things that are not even that serious. Like I get hurt by stuff online or like Twitter stuff. So I would definitely be upset about this. I'm very sensitive. I don't know if I'd be as nice or polite as Sandra is, especially with so much on the line. I think the way Sandra deals with it says a lot about her and the kind of person she is, you know? Now Hisham at first turns her down, says he's not going to change his vote. But later, Sandra comes across him at a grocery store where he's working on the weekends. It's his second job, but it's under the table. And a lot of the characters in this film have second jobs or they have side jobs or something that they're doing to try to get extra money. So her interactions with the co-workers, it's not just about her. It's not just about her, you know, getting the vote she needs. Each interaction also reveals the plight of each individual worker. The film's about Sandra, but it's also about all these other people and how they're living on the margins, living paycheck to paycheck, the way that so many people live. I like that the film does this, that it it gives us time with each of these people and shows some of their humanity. And even though these are people living in Belgium, you know, in a completely different society, a completely different country than me in the United States, their stories, I think, are quite universal and quite global, that the things that they're dealing with, not making enough money, having to do extra jobs, struggling, you know, to pay bills and take care of children, that that's something that I think resonates and echoes throughout the entire world. I mean, anybody in any country watching this film could probably see a lot of themselves in these characters unless you're just completely financially comfortable. But I think it's a generous film as a result because it shows all these people and it's not demonizing them or stereotyping them. It's giving all of them their their deserved humanity. 
her interaction with Hisham is very interesting. You know, he wants the bonus and he says, you know, that's a year's worth of utility bills. So you realize what this money would mean for their life. Sandra gets that, but she also says that she wants to work. She wants to come back to her job. She's better. And we we learn more about Jean-Marc and how much he has against Sandra. You know, Hisham says that um, it's basically like Jean-Marc is holding her depression against her that he thinks that she won't be able to do the job as well because she was sick. And, you know, Jean-Marc's the one that was very threatening and said that, you know, even if Sandra wasn't fired, one of them would be. At the end of this, when she hears about how they think she's weaker because of her depression, it's like she can't breathe, she can't speak. She goes back to the car and, and he has to open the water bottle and it's like she becomes completely frozen in that moment that is like a devastating moment I think for her to for her to hear that for her to hear the way that others view her that she's weak that she's less than because of her depression and isn't that what so much of society does think that if you have depression you're weak you're less than and you're worthless that is a very widespread opinion I would say there's not a lot of sympathy for people with mental illness issues You know, afterwards, she and Manu are sitting outside eating these ice cream cones or like under these big trees. You can tell that Sandra is starting to struggle a bit. Maybe Jean-Marc is right and she's starting to believe that. And But Manu is right there telling her that anyone would be knocked down and struggling under these circumstances. Losing your job and anybody would struggle with it. And it's so heartbreaking when she says that she wishes that she was one of those birds singing. Because there are these birds singing in the trees. And she wishes that she was that bird singing. And it's one of those things, like, I've always wished that at times. You know, that I was someone else or something else. I think depression can do that to you where you're, you just don't want to be in your mind and in your body anymore. You want to be free. To me, that scene is about Sandra wishing that she could be free. That she could be that bird singing. That she could sort of fly away from it all, right? And not have to deal with any of it. And she just seems to be doubting things. She even says to Manu that she thinks they'll split up, that he doesn't love her, he just pities her. Again, she's sort of in this feeling of self-hatred, of worthlessness, of being nothing and no one. And that is such a dark and horrible thing. I think Marion Cotillard in an interview or a few interviews talked about how for her this was a big part of the film was this idea that you're useless of how cruel that idea is. To her everybody has a place. You know Marion believes that. She believes that everybody's useful. Everybody has value and so to play a character who felt completely useless as a person of like how do you even get to that point? How do you even feel that way of how terrible such a thing is that anybody would feel like they're not of use or they don't matter. It is a very destructive feeling to feel that way. And when you feel it day after day, year after year, it just absolutely can be destructive and it can just destroy you to feel like you have no value and you have no worth as a person. And the way that other people can make us feel that way, like it's really heartbreaking. And not every interaction is like cordial. She goes to this this father and son. They seem to be father and son. And the son becomes really violent. And she ends up getting knocked down. The father gets knocked unconscious, I think. 
until they're able to bring him back. I mean, it gets really belligerent. Like, these bonuses mean a lot to some people. And they are, like, willing to get ugly and violent over it. But the father agrees that he will vote for Sandra. So she does get his vote. But the son gets very violent about it. And so the first day is over. You know, she's gone to all these people. She's won some. She's lost some. She really starts to break down a bit. She's starting to question, you know, how can I go back to work? If she gets kept, say they do the vote and she wins the vote, how could she stay? Her presence will only remind them of the thousand euros that they lost, of all this money they could have had. How's she going to go to the cafeteria? How's she going to interact with them in the break room, on the floor of the factory? You know, she's starting to think about the whole dynamic that it could create. And she kind of feels like she's being pushed too hard. And that's also a big reason why the brothers decided that she wouldn't win the vote at the end is that she's vocalizing it right there you know how can she go back to this place so they didn't even think that was realistic for her how would she go back into that environment it's going to be very hostile right because they didn't get their bonus everything would change and the dynamic would be different and it's not an environment where she could thrive or that she could really live because she can never go back to before the vote. That's what's kind of sad too, is that she can never forget that all these people voted against her. She'll always be a reminder to them of their lack of courage, right? That they couldn't vote for her and they didn't do the right thing when they should have. And then they have to look at her every day and face her every day, like the shame that you might feel over that. I don't think that would have been a good ending either because she can never go back to before the vote she'll never be able to look at those co-workers in the same way to trust them to open up to them in the same way and I think like it's very realistic that she struggles that her strength ebbs and flows that sometimes she's hopeful and then sometimes she's in the depths of like hopelessness she gets overwhelmed And if you think about it, what she's going through is incredibly brutal. You know, she's going to these people and she's kind of begging them to help her. And then she's having to face their rejection of her in like in the face. Like she's right there and they're rejecting her. It's one thing for them to take a vote when you're not there. I think it's a completely different thing to actually have to look at these people while they reject you and turn you down. I don't know, like, how would you do that? I don't know if I'd have the the courage or the strength or the ability to do that. I mean, she even experiences some violence, you know, where she gets knocked down by that guy. And ev- But every time that, S- that Sandra gets down, Manu is right there. Like, at the end of this day, she's in bed. She tells him that she feels so alone. And he tells her that they'll get through it. And he's like her rock. He is there for her. He's always there by her side. And it gives her, I think, the ability to go on. And the next day, she's right there in it again. Her odyssey continues with more visits. She goes to this uh, house where this woman uh, is doing some renovation. And they, they need money for like a patio or something. But she tells Sandra that she will talk to her husband and to come back later. So there's a little bit of hope there. And what's interesting is that that woman ends up leaving her husband. And the impetus is this whole situation with Sandra, that it revealed something to her about her husband, obviously. And he's very, um, he's sort of violent with her. Like there's an implication that there's some domestic violence in that relationship and later on Sandra's right there and saying 
that you can come stay with us. I'll take you in. I mean, here here is Sandra with so much kindness and compassion. She's sort of like modeling that, I think, to other people, that kind of integrity. And that woman ends up leaving her husband as a result. And then there's that wonderful moment where she's in the car with Manu. They they start to listen to the Petula the Petula call. God, I can't say Petula. Is it What am I saying? Petula. The Petula Clark song. The French song that she's singing. This is actually a dark song. That's why Manu wants to turn it off because it's it's a really dark song and I love this scene. Okay, first of all, I love pop music and those of you who listen know this. I love French pop music. I watched this BBC documentary probably, I don't know, two years ago about French pop music, about French pop singers, and I think Petula Clark hosted it. So this Petula Clark song, La Nuit Non Fini Plus, The Night Won't Seem to End. This is a translation that I found, and I wanted to read the lyrics because they're really dark. If you don't know French, this sounds like an upbeat song. Like, I kind of thought it was an upbeat song when I first heard it. It was a big hit for Petula Clark, a really big hit. It's one of her most well-known songs. It's a very classic song in in her repertoire. Yeah, when you're English and you don't know the French, you're like, oh, this is a nice song. I like this. And the scene itself is so sweet. Um, It's something that makes the film feel really real too. Is like, here's just these people in the car listening to a French song they love. I love that little smile that Marion gives. Because like I said, Manu turns the volume down. And then she she turns the volume up and so when she does that she smiles she wants to hear this song she loves this song and she can handle it I just love that little interaction between them because in that interaction is so much history and love and beauty and it just feels so real the song according to this translation is the night won't seem to end and here's some of the lyrics when I'm not sleeping the night drags on the night won't seem to end and I wait for something to come And I don't know who, I don't know what. I want to love, I want to live. Despite the emptiness, despite the emptiness of all this time past, of all this wasted time, and of all this lost time, to think that there are so many beings on the earth who, like me tonight, are alone. It's sad to the point of death. What a senseless world. I would like to sleep and not think anymore. I light a cigarette. I have dark ideas in my mind. And the night seems so long, so long, so long. In the distance, sometimes I hear the sound of footsteps. Someone coming. But it all fades and then it's silent. The night will then never end. The moon is blue. There are gardens. Lovers who walk on hand in hand. And I am here crying without knowing why, turning like a soul in pain, yes, alone with myself, desiring someone that I love, not this night, this night that will obviously never end, but I feel so blue, I would like to leave at random, go far away, and as soon as the day arrives, but the night, the night, oh, the night won't seem to end, the night won't seem to end. This is an intense song. Like, this is dark. This is someone dealing with darkness and possibly depression. And I really had no idea until I looked up the lyrics. So that's why he turns it down. Because it's it's a dark song but she wants to hear it and she wants to listen to it and she she takes the lead there she 
she says, you know what? I'm going to listen to this song. <laughs> and I love that, that, that initiative on her part. And then she goes to Julian and Julian's kind of an interesting character here and he does reject her and he seems to be one of the people really against her because he says that if 16 workers can do the job then why would they bring Sandra back he's trying to deter her and he even asks at one time like oh well who are the other people who voted for you because she says that she has some people who voted for her and in that moment she doesn't tell him she says, oh, it's a secret ballot. So he's he's kind of a darker figure that he seems to be really against her. But they had to do a lot of overtime to make up for her not being there. So but he's trying to dissuade her, obviously, and get her to stop or, yeah, I think he's definitely trying to sabotage things. And you can tell that it's it's kind of hard for her. But what I like about that exchange is that she stands up for herself. She comes right back at him. You know, when he says, well, if 16 people can do the job, why would they want to hire you back? And she says, yeah, but you, you had to do overtime to get all the work done. You know, so she's, she's got her, you know, when she needs to be strong or when she needs to be forceful, she can, she can be totally. And you love her in those moments where she really, like stands up for herself and she doesn't let herself be bullied not at all I really don't think she does and there are so many times in this film where there's something really heartbreaking about Sandra's body language sometimes she's in the car and she's like slumped over there's a lot of shots of her from the back and I don't know why but there's something about like her shoulders and her back I wonder if her wearing that tank top because she's sort of in this coral colored tank top for a lot of the film and it's in a lot of the photos and and even the poster where she's in this coral tank top and I wonder if that was sort of on purpose to show the fragility of her body you know that you see her um, shoulder blades right and you see sort of the bones in her chest and some of the bones sticking out in her shoulders you just see the fragility of her body like if she was wearing a long sleeve shirt or something you know maybe you wouldn't feel that but there's something about the tank top now that I'm thinking about it that gives her more of a physicality, you know, where you see her skin and her bones. And I love seeing the bra straps with that tank top because it's a racer back. So it's not like a normal tank top where usually the tank top would cover the bra straps. And I love how she's not self-conscious about that. I don't know, when I wear tank tops, you know, I don't want my bra strap to show, but she doesn't care. It's It sort of speaks to her character a bit. The character of Sandra, I mean, that She's not worried about her bra straps showing. She's not dressed up. You know, her hair is in like this messy ponytail. She's got simple jeans on. She has a simple back, um, you know, a simple pocketbook. Just wears tank tops or sort of loose fitting shirts. She's just comfortable. But there's just something about seeing her body in the tank top where, I don't know, it just makes her seem so much more fragile, her body, for some reason. And she's so often slumped over or we see her from the back. And I I think that was probably on purpose. And at this point in the film, Sandra gets really discouraged. Like she's really struggling because she also goes by the woman's house, you know, who was renovating her home. The woman and her husband get in a really big argument. You know, it just gets really ugly. And so Sandra ends up going back home. And this is when she 
takes all of her Xanax. She gets all of her Xanax pills together and just swallows all of them. You, It's, you know, it's a suicide attempt, really. You know, she feels hopeless. She feels discouraged. She feels like there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. But right at that moment after she swallows those pills, that woman shows up that had the big fight with her husband. She says that she'll vote she'll vote for Sandra. At this point, Sandra has seven votes. She only needs two more and she'll win. This is what propels her forward. And so she ends up going to the hospital and they, you know, obviously they pump her stomach or they get her to vomit up the pills and she doesn't have to stay there very long. And she gets her second wind, kind of. She decides she's going to go see the remaining few people. That's when that woman says she's going to leave her husband and Sandra says, stay with us for the night. Yeah, she's like, I'm going to go see these other people. I'm going to make this happen. She goes to see one co-worker who's like the main breadwinner and can't vote for her. And he comes to the door and that's an interesting exchange because he knows that he should have voted for her but he couldn't because he's the breadwinner. But then he says that he hopes that the majority sides with her. And he says that he knows that he should be helping her. So there are a lot of people in this group that weren't trying to be malicious. They weren't trying to to hurt her. Like they know that they should have voted for her, but their own circumstances just don't allow them to do that. Now she goes to see Alphonse next. Alphonse is a very important person in this film, I think. I don't think the film would be the same without him. He is an African and he is an immigrant. He's new to the to the factory. He's a newer worker and he's on a contract. He's on a contract basis. And he said that he wanted to vote for Sandra, but he was intimidated by Jean-Marc. And at first he says that he will vote for her and she meets him in a laundry mat. But then he decides that he won't vote for her because his vote would give her the majority, the nine. He says he's, because he's on a fixed short-term contract and it's about to expire soon or, or set to be renewed, that he could get blamed for giving her the vote and for her, for them losing their bonuses. You know, Jean-Marc could say something bad about him or something like that. This guy has a lot of power in the factory and Alphonse does not want to upset him or rock the vote. So there's a lot of suspense, especially with Alphonse. We don't know how he's going to vote, although we assume that he's, you know, not going to vote for her. There's just all this suspense by the end of the film where you're like, God, she could win this. She could totally win this and make this happen. Monday morning comes and Sandra goes to work and the vote's going to be held and uh, she and Jean-Marc have to leave the room and she confronts him. I love this about her. She confronts him about the lies that he's told, about him calling people over the weekend. She finds out that he's sort of been calling people and trying to sabotage what she's doing and telling them to not change their vote and of course he denies it and she says you know you're heartless and I just love this moment I love the way that she stands up for herself against him because you'd think oh she'll be a shrinking violet or like a lot of people would be but not Sandra Sandra has so much integrity about her and I love that about her so the vote as we know as any of you who have watched the film know it goes eight 
and eight. So it's tied. She doesn't win. She doesn't get a majority, but she gave it her best and she did a great job to get it from, you know, 14 out of 16 voted against her to eight voted for her and eight voted against her. She won some votes. She converted some people. She gave it all she had. I love that. She tried. And I love the scene where all the people who voted for her are in the cafeteria and she gets to see them and thank them. Like, I just absolutely love that. That she gets to look them in the eye and say how much it meant to her that even though she lost, even though they lost, right, that what they did mattered. That it sent a message to her, as I said earlier, that her life has value and worth. That they would be willing to give up a bonus, a huge bonus that could really help them in order to do the right thing for a fellow human being, for a fellow co-worker. Those eight people, even though all 16 don't show solidarity, and even then you can't blame them. You can't blame the other eight. You know, you can't condemn them and say, oh, they're terrible people. Not after we've seen her visit them and we've seen her interact with them and we know about their second jobs and their kids who are in college and what they need that money for. We know all of that. Alphonse is in that cafeteria. So we realize that he did vote for her. He did put himself on the line to vote for her. He showed a great moment of solidarity. So even though all 16 didn't, those eight in the room did. They took a stand. They sent a message. They did something important. And that's Sandra's victory. Not that she converted everybody, but that she converted some of them. And her meeting them, I mean, like I said, one of the worst things about depression is just how worthless and alone you feel. And I think that these eight people remind her that she matters, that she has worth, that they care. And there's so much humanity in this scene. She's connected to them through this. I think they are a big part of why she's able to reconnect with life and to feel some kind of hope at the end of this film. There, There is goodness in the world. It's, it's hard to find sometimes and you don't feel it every day. You don't feel it in every situation, but you might find it every now and then. And sometimes that's what you have to hold on to. And you have to try to remember that when you were hurting, there were moments when somebody was there. When you're hurting again, somebody might be there again. It may not always be terrible, right? And so I think through this odyssey, she reconnects with Manu, obviously, but then I think she also reconnects with life thanks to these eight people who showed solidarity, the power of solidarity, the power of like human connection. And you think this is the end, but then there's that big twist that the Dardan brothers gave us. And I'm glad they did. And they said they did it on purpose. That every time she went to these people, she said, put yourself in my shoes. Think about what what this means to me to keep my job. But then they said they wanted to put her in that situation where she had to make a choice, where she could keep her job. So Dumont, Mr. Dumont wants to talk to her and tells her, you know, I can bring you back. You'll be laid off for a little while, but we have this contract that's about to expire in a few months. And she knows that it's Alphonse that his contract is about to expire. So she's given like this, I guess, devil's bargain or something, right? It's like terrible that she could get her job back. 
but she has to let Alphonse lose his and she refuses. She refuses to take his job or to get her job back by having him lose his. That's not how she wants to come back and I think we also realize that she can't come back. She can't. So if she comes back through that way, She's lost her dignity as a person. She has let Alphonse lose his job. She can't do that. If she had won the vote, like I said, how would she interact with these people in the same way again, knowing that they had voted against her? And how would they interact with her, half of them, knowing that they lost their bonus because of her? So she retains her grace and her dignity in her decision to just leave. And it's very connected to that Satyajit Ray film of the big city. That ending of, oh, it's a big city. We'll find work. We'll find a job. There's hope. And that's what Sandra feels like. I can find another job. It's not worth what I would lose to keep this job. She would lose something very essential to her. She would lose, I think, a piece of her humanity if she came back to the company in that way. I don't think it fits her character. I don't think it fits who she is. I think it's totally realistic that she would not come back to work under those circumstances. And of course, the final the final shot of her on the phone with Menu, you know, she says, it's tough, but I'll start looking for work. And then she tells him, you know, we put up a good fight. We put up a good fight. And for the first time in the film, I think, She says that she's happy. She actually says she's happy. And she smiles. I mean, come on. Marion Cotillard's smile. Is there anything better in the world? It just lights up the world to me. Like, I love her smile. Oh, it's just everything. She has like the sweetest eyes too. I can't get over her eyes. They're like, oh my God. They're just so adorable. She's an adorable uh, woman. I love her. And we just watch her walk away from that factory. And she's really walking into an unknown future. But she has Menu. She has her husband. She has her children. She has some friends that she's made who will, I think, be there for her. She has found that she does have worth, you know, that other people find her a valuable person. I mean, I tend to think that depression is both biological and environmental. This nature versus nurture thing, I think it's both. I think that we can have a predisposition for something like depression or anxiety. But then if you skate through life and you have resources and you have money and you have a good life, it it may not get activated, right? Like... Or it may not get really bad or something. But you could be predisposed to those things the way that I am. And then go through some of the stuff that I've been through. Like loss and financial hardship and lack of resources. And it exacerbates what you have. Like I've always had depression and anxiety since I was a child. I would cry myself to sleep. You know, I would have suicidal thoughts. I would feel worthless and tired and just hopeless for no reason that I could explain. So it was always there in me. I was always struggling with it to some extent. But then life experiences, the death of my father, financial insecurity, all kinds of different things that happened to me made it worse. It exacerbated that anxiety and depression that I already had and that I was already predisposed to. I just don't think it's any 
coincidence that here in the United States, mental health is such an issue in a country where there is so little community, where people feel very alone, where they don't have access to resources, they don't have a right to health care, they don't have a right to a lot of things. I just don't think it's any surprise that people are dealing with depression and anxiety and mental illness, that we have high rates of drug use and opioid addiction and those are things connected to despair and hopelessness and pain. There's a lot of that in this country and it doesn't get talked about and it doesn't get focused on at all. So what would it, you know, what would it be like if you lived somewhere where there was more sense of solidarity and community, where you felt connected to the people around you, where you felt like you had a support system, where you didn't feel so much economic hardship or struggle with financial precarity? What, you know, how would that affect one's mental health? Would there be lower rates of mental illness? I don't know. You know, I just, I don't think we look enough at the environmental causes of some of this, of how it is connected to capitalism, how it is connected to class issues, to race issues, you know, to discrimination and things that people live through in their everyday lives and how that can affect your mental health and your physical health too. When you deal with oppression or when you deal with, you know, lots of anxiety and fear about your financial situation, how could that affect your depression too? And this lack of community, this lack of connection, this overwhelming loneliness that I think a lot of people feel, especially in the United States. I mean, I don't know how it is in Belgium. I don't know, you know, how it is in those particular areas. I'm just speaking from a place of, as an American, right? And how I just see, I see a lot of mental health stuff here in this country, and there is so little community and so little connection. And what Sandra gets is she gets some community. She has her family, but she also has people beyond her family. People at the factory that voted for her, her friends, things like that. And that community and that solidarity is just as important, right, as the Xanax or or anything like that, is having people who are rooting for you, having people who care about you and love you. That can be helpful too. Although there are also things about depression that one cannot control. You know, you could have 20 people that love you and still have depression. You know, I'm not trying to say that it's an individual's fault or that, oh, well, if you just have people that love you, you won't have depression. I have a mother that loves me deeply and dearly, and I still have depression. And I feel that love from her. I still struggle with depression. So I'm saying that it's both. You have this predisposition, you have this depression, but then you can also have environmental things that can worsen it, I think. But that doesn't mean that, oh, if you fix the environmental things, oh, you're cured and it's gone. I don't want to send that message. Like, oh, if you have a great job and you have people that love you, oh, there's no way you could have depression. We know that's not true. There are plenty of celebrities that have depression and anxiety and mental illness, and they have all the resources in the world. So it's not all of that, but I think it can be a component to it. And so that's something that I love about this film, where it doesn't mean she doesn't have depression anymore, but at least she feels at the end of the film some kind of connection, solidarity, sense of community. And that's something that bolsters her and gives her some hope and, and gives her some happiness too. That what if she what if she had just stayed in bed and not tried to convince them? What if she had not done the two days one night? It's about how these two days and one night change her, how they affect her, 
And if she hadn't done it, where would she be by the end of the film? It's the fact that she went on this odyssey, this journey, and she at least tried. She at least put in that good fight. That's why she can walk away with her head held high, with a smile on her face, you know, and a sense of hope for her life and her future. That she gave it a good fight. And Manu was there for her the whole way. Other people were there for her the whole way. And that's something that she can hold on to and I think it's a beautiful ending yeah I think it feels right it feels true it feels authentic and gosh what a film even better I think the second time I watched it resonated with me even more I appreciate the way it looks at class and capitalism obviously but I also love the way that it looked at depression and mental illness and a woman really fighting for her life and how she she finds herself again she connects to herself her sense of self her sense of worth she does exist you know at the beginning of the film she says i'm nothing i'm no one i don't exist but i think by the end she realizes i do exist i do matter at least in that moment at least in that moment she feels that that's what can be so powerful is that when you feel seen by other people and you feel visible and you feel real to them and like you do exist and you do matter I just think that can be such a powerful emotion it's not something that all of us get to feel all the time in our lives to feel seen and heard and appreciated and I feel like Sandra gets that well I've gone on long enough thank you so much for listening until next time keep watching great films bye for now Mm -hmm.